Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Swartzdrop. On today's show, hacking sex toys. Could the next cybersecurity risk be your vibrator? My guests seem to think so, so we're going to talk about teledildonics on today's show. Joining me is Amy Stepanovich, U.S. Policy Manager at Access Now, a global civil liberties and human rights organization, and Arthur Reiser, Senior Fellow at R Street and Director of Teledildonics Policy at R Street, and uh, R Street is a free market think tank based in D.C., Gentlemen and lady, thank you for joining the show. Thanks for having us. There you go. You say it at the same time. That's good. All right. Um, So before we jump into this exciting topic, what do we mean when we say teledildonics? So it's it's an older term. Um, In 2017, what it means is this world of interconnected um, sex toys and other objects, um, which it's very interesting that they're called toys actually, because some of them have legitimate medical uses, um, but we still fit them into this um, sex toy category, things that are used in intimate settings. Um, And they're connected to the internet in any of a number of ways, and we can get into the different types. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've talked about the internet of things on this show before, and I often use things like internet connected coffee maker or like an internet connected refrigerator, but really there's no reason why that wouldn't extend to sex toys and it already has. Now, how is it a security risk to have a sex toy that is digital or has a digital component or maybe is connected to the internet? Just like any of the other Internet of Things devices, once you connect to the internet, you're creating a vulnerability. Um, so it can be that vulnerability can be exploited um, if the product isn't secure enough, and and really no product is secure enough that there can't be some way that it can be exploited in some fashion. And so with um, Connected sex toys, you can either compromise the connection to the device, um, the connection that's controlling the device. So that would be a Wi-Fi or other connections? Um, It could be Wi-Fi. It could be Bluetooth. There are any number of ways that people connect these devices back to the network. Um, Or you could be trying to compromise the data stream that's being created by the device itself. So there's the the physical connection and then the, the data generated. Yeah, and I also think that there's something a little bit different about sex toys than other devices. You know, Samsung is very active in ensuring that their televisions and their other devices have uh, protection. So if there's a, a camera and a Samsung TV, but generally speaking, and this is generally speaking, when you're talking about sex toys, smaller companies, uh, companies that don't come from a, a, a technology background. So they're thinking about this on the front end, you know, Apple, Samsung, Sony, they, 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 they are technology based companies. They're thinking about this all the time. They're also thinking about lawsuits all the time. They have huge legal teams. If you look at most sex toys companies, sex toy companies, they're relatively small. Uh, there's a lot of money in the sex toy industry, but it's dispersed, uh, widely it's a huge net and so i think that when you're looking at sex toys in particular there's no there's no difference in um the 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 potential for breaching except for the fact that you have smaller companies smaller resources smaller tech teams i also think just the very nature of it it's 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 different you know if your refrigerator spies on you that's troubling yeah, people could see what food you're eating, but obviously the implications here are much more intimate and exactly. personal. Now, when you say that it's a Wi-Fi connection that could be compromised, Amy, is that as simple as someone just connecting to your home Wi-Fi? Maybe you didn't protect it with the right password or you left a default password, or is it also that the device itself could be emitting a Wi-Fi connection? What exactly does it look like when someone hacks into one of these? 
you can exploit the connection that you're using. So that could be this open Wi-Fi network. Um, you could also potentially, um, the devices themselves often come with default passwords. And unfortunately, unlike other Internet of Things devices, a lot of those default passwords end up being published in owner manuals and user manuals, which means you can get them online. Or you guess and you put in zero, zero, zero and it works. Or like when you buy a new wireless router, often the default settings are admin and password. And unless you are a proactive user who looks at the manual, who follows the step-by-step instructions, you could have people freeloading off your Wi-Fi. And like you said earlier, the implications of someone connecting to your Wi-Fi might just be that they're uh, stealing your internet for free, but the implications here are obviously much more personal. Now, uh, there are actually examples of this having taken place where people just guess a password or a security researcher has discovered this vulnerability. So uh, one of the things you guys bring up in your op-ed, which is going to be linked to in the show notes for today, and it's a great op-ed, it's in Wired, it's called The Next Security Risk May Be Your Vibrator, is that some of this is just not very sophisticated hacking. I mean, we're talking about just like the most basic lack of security and there's a particular case that played out. Amy, do you want to give the listeners a sense of why we're talking about this? Sure. So there there have been two pretty ho- high-profile cases until now. Um, the first one was a product known as WeVibe. Um, what researchers that presented at DEF CON, actually a, a hacker conference that takes place in Las Vegas, what they demonstrated um, were, were two different things. One is that the device was collecting a shit ton of data, um, really incredibly personal data, set user settings, um, how often and when the product was being used. And the creepiest, what your body temperature was. Oh my God. Yeah. Super creepy. Really <laughs> creepy. Um, and so they were, they were storing that data and the database was not secure. And so that what they were found out is they could get access to the data that these devices were generating. The other piece of that was that they could actually exploit some of these weaknesses that they were using to get access to the data and take control of the device. And um, actually and change actually, the settings. Exactly. Wow. Um, and so they were ostensibly, and Arthur can talk a little bit more about this later, um, changing the way the person wanted it to operate or changing the person who, who the user wanted to operate it even. Um, which starts to look a lot like one of the sex crimes that have been on the books for for some time now. Um, Just real quickly, the other case was a different product um, by Svacom, which is another company. It was an internet-connected sex toy with a camera in it. And what they were able to demonstrate is that camera feed was vulnerable and could be accessed, Um, which, you know, the... um, the story was broken in Motherboard, actually, and they had a video feed from this camera. And so you get the sense that this is not um, explicit, really. It's, it's inside your body, but it's really not something you want somebody else to have access to. It's incredibly personal but it's, data. But the way it gets in your body is explicit. Yeah, and that's interesting because one of the things that comes up in the Internet of Things a lot is that we don't have necessarily security by design because, as you mentioned, this is an industry that was analog and now it's being digitized. It's not a company that was founded for the purpose of technology necessarily. And it wasn't necessarily always going to be an internet-connected device, so they didn't necessarily envision that. So they create this product, and if security is not built into the system, that's one thing. But you've identified a potentially even more egregious thing, which is that after they know 
that there's a vulnerability. And after there's been reporting on it, they're still not patching it. Now, is that just that these companies don't have the resources, that they're small, they don't have the right technologists, or is there just not enough concern or awareness about this problem? I don't know. And I think that it's curious, you know, after this article came out, we we had three types of comments uh, when it was posted. The first was supportive, this is a great idea. The second was from uh, people within the industry that wanted us to point out that uh, these products serve a purpose. And I agree with them. That wasn't the point of the article, I think. Yeah, and it's not it, the point of this podcast to judge people using the product. And that's yeah. the third point, is yeah. that you would have this weird, quasi creepy victim blaming of like, why would you want a, a camera? in your vibrator well, it's kind of victim blaming and sex shaming all it is in one, which is horrible I don't, I don't want to i don't want a camera in my vibrator but i don't care if anybody else does i mean and it, it's really crazy that that is the response for i don't know how many what, what the percentages i'll tell you it's too many and just extrapolate out that out to other technologies and it would quickly become ridiculous right like you wouldn't criticize someone for having a computer that has a webcam and it's easily plausible that your webcam is open on your desk and you're doing something intimate and the webcam could be hacked. Sure. So you wouldn't make that argument for a computer, for a security camera, but because it is a sex toy, people are going to act like that's somehow different. Well, what I think is really telling, um, there are many things that are really telling here, is so after the incident was published, um, Access Now filed an FCC complaint actually about this. Um, we said it was an unfair and deceptive trade practice for this product to be on the market, something that people who use it are really going to assume is a secure product. If I'm going to be transmitting this vid video feed, I would like to think that nobody is going to be able to access that feed. Um, and our the, the company responded, which I have to give them credit for, they actually engaged on this. Uh, but their response we didn't think actually solved the problem. And so we published, you can look on our website, both um, the FTC complaint and their response, and then our response back to them as well, because we we felt it was proper to answer them and to to draw out some of these complaints, but they weren't addressing it. And I think this gets back to one of the things that you said to begin with, is that companies in this field, and Arthur said this too, are just not paying attention to this issue. They've never had to do it before. They have this new capability that they want to include in their devices, and they want to find a way um, to help their market and to incorporate this in a way that is beneficial to the market, but they're not thinking through the security implications. Um, and they don't have the correct people on staff. They don't have the correct resources. They don't have the correct know-how. Um, I think there are projects right now. There's this great project called the Internet of Dongs. Um, he is the person who is doing it. This technologist is testing all of these project products and working with the manufacturers to implement what's called a bug bounty program. I think bug bounty programs are amazing. They allow these vulnerabilities to be reported back to the company um, to give the company an opportunity to patch um, any vulnerabilities that are outstanding. That is something that absolutely needs to be put into place, either through this technologist or any of the other companies out there that do bug bounty programs. And so that's really great. And we want to see more awareness from these, these sex toy companies that this is something that they should be implementing and that these security um, steps or something that they need to be doing. And just to be clear, the vulnerabilities that were discovered, that we're discussing, as far as we know, they were discovered by white hat hackers. They were discovered by people who did the hacking in order to expose the vulnerability in the hopes of correcting it. They were not malicious people who committed a crime and then admitted it, right? Not that we know of. I mean, but I think the, one of the unique things about this issue in particular is 
it would be very difficult to determine um, if a hack actually happened uh, because I don't think people were paying attention per se. And if someone guesses your password, that's not something you can just figure out. Well, easily, a lot of these right? devices were designed to be able to do this. They were designed to be able to give, you know, and I, you know, listen, I'm, I'm a retired army officer. I spent 20 years in the army. I did two tours in Iraq and I can see the allure and the benefit of connectability with my spouse. If I'm deployed, I can talk to her on the phone. I can have a sexual relationship with my loved one. And so they build these into it now. And, and cam girls, you know, women who make a living doing uh, sexual explicit things on the internet. Um, and they, they'll sell their passwords. They'll rent their passwords out to, to people. Um, again, we can all snicker, snicker, but their body, their rules, they can do what they want. Uh, there's no evidence of exploitation. So let's talk about accountability mechanisms. So we'll start with legal and then we'll get to policy. So there was a lawsuit. Um, and uh, Amy, do you want to kind of walk us through which instance led to the lawsuit and if there were any precedents set or uh, if we can learn anything from the settlement? Sure. So there, there was a lawsuit and there was a settlement. The settlement specifically spoke to this collection of data. Um, which that company we just was this again? This was the WeVibe company. Right. And it was about um, the fact that they were over collecting information, like what Arthur said, the body temperature of the user. Um, and it wasn't in their, their terms user of service, right? Agreement. Yeah. And so the, the settlement came out of that. It was a, it was a good sum of money. $3.7 million. $3.7 million. Um, but what it didn't get to was that other thing that we, the other piece of this that we talked about, which was the ability to um, change the operator of the device, which in my mind is actually the, the much more invasive part of this hack. That's how you end up getting into a second legal question, which is that does remotely accessing and controlling someone's vibrator, is that a form of sexual assault? I, I hate to be the lawyer here, but it depends. And it really depends on the jurisdiction. Um, the event that Amy and I did together, I was floored when I started looking at this on an international level. Um, but I'm not going to get into that. Let's talk domestically. It really depends on how you define uh, sexual assault. There are states in the union right now that still define sexual assault only, excuse me, rape only as forcible uh, assault, which means it's the boogeyman jumping out of the bushes, which happens, but it's actually relatively rare. Which means it has to involve humans only. It can't be technology. Right. There are other states that specifically use the word device um, and a, a unknowing. Now, I would say that escaping the sexual aspect of it, I think it clearly falls into the general assault uh, category because that is unwanted touching. Um, and right. that to me, where it's actually battery, but that's not slice things here. And just to be clear, we're not saying that rape is uncommon. We're saying that this particular type of legal definition of rape. Yeah, because it's a state by state. Thing. No, what I meant was the jump, the guy jumping out of the bushes is relatively uncommon, actually, in the United States. Most the vast majority of rape happens on a date rape. Um, people, you uh, know, people, yeah. you know, right. uh, it happens. But right. it's it is it's the the dialogue we hear in the United States that is that, you know, that is rape and everything else is something less. Um, we don't need to get a policy issue about that. But this is obviously kind of falls into that category. It also has other weird kind of legal um, attributes to it of the cam girl situation in particular could be theft, theft of services. You're stealing something from this person who makes a living doing this. Um, and I think that's sound might sound strange, but um, I would be pretty pissed if I made my living doing a service and then somebody stole it from me. So something that happens with uh, lawsuits is sometimes the settlement kind of sets a precedent that leads to better outcomes or better practices. 
Amy, I think you were suggesting that that's not what happened here, that essentially the company had to pay some millions of dollars, but that we didn't really resolve these questions in the lawsuit. So we've resolved, we, well, not definitively, but we have good precedent now on the data collection issue. Right. Um, because they collected data they weren't supposed to. Exactly. Which is really important. Again, we don't have precedent on these other issues. And when you're going to have a crime result from this type of um, vulnerability exploitation, and I think that's really important is because we have in the United States the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, um, which punishes going beyond the scope of your authorization. So this is, um, I would say, pretty definitively a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, but we haven't revisited basic criminal law to determine if and when we're going to hold these devices, the people who hack into these devices to account. And so once again, you have this um, situation that we have far too frequently in our increasingly connected world where the technology has outpaced the law. And because of the nature of this conversation and the fact that people do tend to to trivialize right. um, devices within the sex industry and to, um, again, victim blame and slut shame or sex shame. Marginalize their stories. Marginalize. It's, we've um, seen this, you know, going back to the very first nudie magazine, we've seen the same type of attitude within the criminal justice system. It's just ignored. Uh, and every single state needs to update their, I sorry to interrupt you, but every single state I think needs to update uh, their statute at the bare minimum. Listen, I don't think that hacking into a dildo is the same thing as jumping out of the bushes. I don't think it's the same thing as date rape, but it's in the same category and it should be treated as such. Um, and it, it's a crime and it's not, it's not hacking. It's not hacking and it's not just theft of services. It is something beyond that. Right. And I think that most people would agree. A lot of states have a, uh, a statute called invasion of privacy, and there have been several states that have tried. I don't think anything's passed yet. Uh, a, a different category of invasion of privacy that specifically looks at some type of sex act. Usually it's filming somebody when they don't want. But I think somewhere in between there is what we're talking about. And they need to they need to catch up. So, of course, there is always a risk, and we've talked about this on the show before, when you have the FTC getting involved and uh, criticizing companies for either lax data security or for unfair and deceptive practices, the question is always, how can you strike a balance that protects consumers from a very, very real harm, especially the topic of today's show, but also you don't want to put too much strain on these tiny companies that are trying to innovate to keep up with the changing market and to take advantage of technology so that their analog product can continue to evolve and continue to create value for the consumer. So you guys are policy people. What do you think the correct balance is to make sure that you protect consumers without stifling innovation? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about putting people in jail for hacking into people's dildos. That's what I'm talking about. So that, I mean, that's one thing that, that that's an enforcement after the fact, right. but what is the, is there a policy solution that essentially a regulation that prevents the problem from occurring in the first place, Amy? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think Arthur has a really great point is we need to be talking about the people who are committing these hacks and what they're, they're going to be accused of. Um, but we also do need to think about the companies um, and the fact that, you know, we in the, in our Internet of Things world and in our connected world, a lot of times the tendency is to move fast and break things. I think that's what Mark Zuckerberg is, right. is pretty famous. Creative disrupt, disruption, uh, destruction, all that stuff. Yeah. But we are actually 
breaking people in a lot of ways. You know, we're putting out toasters that can burn houses down if they are hacked into and sex toys that can allow people to be ostensibly sexually assaulted. Remotely, um, yeah. And so we we shouldn't be moving that fast, I don't think. And that's not to say that as I start, like I started out saying, no product is going to have perfect security, but we need to be considering the security implications of these products. Um, there needs to be some evidence that it's being taken very seriously and that the companies are thinking through this and hiring the right people um, and taking the steps they need to take. Now that said, I don't think that if a hack were to occur from a company that did take this seriously, if that's something that should be evidence that the company was negligent. I think we do also need to live in a world of transparency where these companies do not feel like they're going to be stigmatized for a one-off incident when they've tried to do everything right. But we do need to push them into the world where they need to try to do things right. Yeah, you don't want to actually have the backfire effect. We've talked about this. I mean, listeners of this program can already see so many parallels to other tech policy issues, which is important because I think a general theme of the show is that don't treat this like some special case when there are obvious parallels with other tech policy issues. But this gets into the problem of just, you want companies to be honest with their customer. You want companies to tell their customer when something has happened, like a data breach. But if you come down on them with such a sledgehammer when they do admit something like that and you try to run them out of business, that could be a backfire. And then you actually end up with companies burying their heads in the sand, trying to have plausible deniability. So there are so many balances that need to be struck here between innovation and consumer protection, between transparency and uh, you know sensitivity to personal information. I think that's fair. I, and I don't want to you know raise the, the feminine, feminist rally cry here, but I, I have a gut feeling that if we were talking about the, the type of sex uh, robots that you, you can buy in Japan, that menus, and if those were manipulated in some way, that, we, that people would have a different attitude about it. To me, and this is just my experience writing this article and having these discussions, it seems like this issue in particular is, and we use the word snickered at, <laughs> but if it was something more that, 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 that touched a different demographic, I think that we would have a, a different opinion about it. And, and again, that is my instincts. I don't have any facts to back that up. I mean, it's a, it's a very fair point. And, and, to, and it's really not being talked about that much. And there's a reason that you two are on my podcast talking about it because you guys are writing about this and you guys are doing panels. But it would be a stretch to say that this is like an issue that's getting a lot of attention aside from a handful of articles. Well, and I think it was telling that what we wrote about in our op-ed, most of it I knew already because we'd been doing research on this. The one fact that I didn't know that was one of the things that disturbed me the most is this company called Flexispy, which is, is pretty... Um, infamous in the the human rights world because they sell technologies that are used to spy on activists and dissidents um but they had put out a april fool's joke about being able to hack into sex toys and and take control of them and they were going to sell a product to easily and cheaply allow people to do this to people who use these devices. And it was really gross, and they thought it was really funny. And I feel like that's the worst thing that's been brought up on the show, is that possibility of actually altering the device itself. And you're telling me they were not only joking about it, but they were bragging about it yeah. and trying to make money off of it. And yeah. there was very <sighs> few, if you look on the page where they're doing this, there is very little indication that this was a joke. And I looked at it months after April, so there was no context for me. And it took me quite a while to realize that this is, in fact, an April Fool's joke. Um, I, had, I had to Google the name of the company and what happened to read other things written about it. That's how I...
Yeah, so it wasn't obvious to the to the viewer. Now, of course, uh, I always like to close out the show by kind of painting a picture of where this issue is going. So we've had one lawsuit. Amy pointed out how there were some things that were resolved about the data collection and data privacy, but not the uh, remote access and exactly what law that falls under. Are there any members of Congress uh, talking about this? Are there any people at the state level proposing bills? Is there anything that someone could point to as like a policy solution here? Or are we really just uh, stuck in a world of enforcement, holding bad actors to account, and then using the FTC's existing Section 5 authority to try to enforce against failed promises of companies? So I, I don't know of anybody who's talking about fixing this problem yet. Um, I would like to get us to the point where there, the stigma of talking about these issues is gone so that we can have those conversations. Um, but I think that there is a really important medical component of this as well, and it's an issue um, that's going to be even harder to talk about. And it's when these devices are used um, for rehabilitation, um, for people who have already been subject to abuse or assault, and are trying to take back control of their lives and the fact that this could be making them even more vulnerable when they're already in a vulnerable state. And if there's any in for lawmakers to discuss this issue, um, I believe that is going to be the, the point of entry for the conversation. Um, yeah, it's important to just remind there. the listeners that these products are not just used for that like image in your mind of it, it could be a variety of things, including a medical use, which just accentuates the point that this is not something to be laughed about and it should be discussed. And I'm happy that we're on the podcast talking about it. Any final words to close off the show? Just to answer your last question, I, there is some movement um, in some states to try to give a more current definition of sexual assault. Um, this is things that our street have been working on. Our, our, our director for uh, state affairs uh, has spe specifically kind of been helping, you know, coaches along. So some movement, I have zero knowledge of anything within the federal system. California is talking about an internet of things law to allow, to provide for internet of things security, which will have, it is not directly on point, but it will have effects of impacting the industry in a positive way. All right, well, we'll leave it there. The op-ed is the next security risk may be your vibrator. And I have two excellent guests to thank for coming on today's show. Amy Stepanovich, U.S. Policy Manager at Access Now, and Arthur Reiser, Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. Guys, thanks so much. Thanks, Evan. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. Let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at mediatechfreedom.org. Find this podcast in the iTunes store. Please leave us a review because it will help others find the show. Thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.